There are three Old Testament chapters that really provide the foundation for and, and undergird everything that happened in the narrative that was just read to you. And the first of those chapters is in Genesis 15. The second one is Exodus 19. And the third is Deuteronomy 29. Genesis 15, Exodus 19, and Deuteronomy 29. What's happening in Genesis 15 is this fascinating account of when the Lord comes to Abraham. And he tells Abraham that he is going to make a covenant with him. And so Abraham is told to go and to get a cow that has never had a calf, a female goat, and a male goat, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And he goes out and he prepares for the covenant ceremony. And what that involved back then was taking that cow and cutting it in half. Same with the goats. And then putting one turtle dove on one side and a pigeon on the other. And what you would do is you would create this little pathway between these animals that had been killed and cut in two. And at that point, the person who was the subordinate in the contract would walk through that little alleyway, symbolizing that if they were to ever go against the covenant they were making with this king, with this ruler, may this happen to them. It's extremely graphic. The next account is in Exodus 19, and that is where the Lord on Mount Sinai gives the law to his people. He says the covenant that was made with Abraham is, is now being clarified in these commandments that are being given through Moses so that you know what it means to follow me. What is my law? What is my expectation in detail? And then in Deuteronomy 29, right before the people enter into the promised land after 40 years of wandering, Moses again meets with them and he says, this is the expectation that God has for you. And he branches out that covenant to include everybody. Now, I find these three areas fascinating because at the very beginning is when God takes Abraham or Abram and he says to him, I am going to make you into a mighty nation. He doesn't send Abraham through the animals and says, now I want you to walk through there as a sign of your loyalty and your faithfulness to me. Instead, what he does is he allows great darkness to come and he puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And then something that never happens happened. God himself manifests as a smoldering portable oven and a flaming torch walks, as it were, through that carnage himself. That never happens. The king, the superior one, he, he doesn't go through that. That was for the underling. That was for the subordinate. God is saying, in effect, to Abram, we're making a deal today, but it's a deal that you could never fulfill it's an agreement that you could never live up to. It's a covenant that you could never obey. And so because of the weakness that I know that you have, I am going to go through and I am going to walk it for you. And what that signifies is that God will uphold not only his side of the covenant, but he will uphold Abraham's too. Now that alone is pretty astonishing, but when you take into account the fact that God is a just, a just God, it also means that he will therefore have to take on the punishment 
if Abraham or his descendants ever fail. And God, knowing that his descendants would fail, walked through saying, I will also have to pay the penalty for your failure. Now, by the time we get into Exodus 19, we see more clearly what this is, this commandment that comes from God, the the ten words, the ten commandments. And you'll notice again that darkness prevails. There is a great darkness, a heavy cloud that sets upon Mount Sinai. And when God gives this word to the people through Moses, he warns the people, don't even come up on this mountain, don't even touch it, you or any of the animals, or else you will die. It's meant to be very ominous. There's this very heavy sense in the in the scene where God is saying that this is a serious moment, the darkness signifies the judgment that comes upon those who break this law. And then the last one in Deuteronomy 29, that's, that's my favorite, because in that section, Moses calls all the people together, but he doesn't just call the Jews. He doesn't just call the descendants of Abraham. He calls all of the people, all of the men all of their wives, all of their children, all of their servants. And he makes this astonishing statement. He says, I am making this covenant again with you. I'm renewing this covenant with you before you go into the promised land. And this covenant is not just for you men, and it's not just for you couples or for you families or for you Jews. It's also for your servants and even for the foreigners, he says. And then right at the end, he also says, that it is even, Deuteronomy 29, 15, and with whoever is not here with us today. How do you make a covenant with people who aren't even there? The answer is that God, looking forward, says this covenant is going to apply to those who are grafted in to the original group that received these words. And we're going to talk about that in detail in a few weeks when we get back into Romans chapter 9. That's the whole point of that chapter. Just for today, I need to say all of that because it provides the, 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 the operating foundation for everything that makes the resurrection narrative relevant to Jesus' statement that we talked about back in on Good Friday that he was going to bring a new covenant. A new covenant. We just learned about the old covenant. He says, you all understand that as Jews. I'm going to talk to you about the new covenant. And that new covenant is in my blood. And if you're here on Friday... We talked about the cry on the cross, talked about the curse that Jesus took, and we talked about the covenant. And I said I was going to explain that a little bit more and how it connects, and that's what I'm doing this morning. All of those covenant promises that were given to the Jews, all of those covenant promises that were going to be poured out upon them as blessings, like we saw in Psalm 103 earlier today, were going to be poured out upon them, not because they earned it but because God made a way for them to be blessed even though they broke the covenant and because God made a way for them not to be punished because they broke the covenant. God had to come and provide for both the righteousness that they could never earn and the price they could never pay. He had to come to provide the righteousness they could never earn and the price that they could never pay. And he did that through Christ and Christ calls that the new covenant in his blood. And that's, that's what he reveals as being completely effective and successful when he reveals himself to Mary. Mary of all people. I love the fact that Jesus reveals himself to Mary Magdalene. This woman who had seven demons taken out of her. It might be a literal seven or it might be a a figurative word for seven, meaning like almost an infinite number of demons. 
whatever it was, Mary was evidently and, and, and definitively understood to be a demon-possessed woman. Now, if you are known as a demon-possessed man or woman, person, you know, usually there's something characteristic about you that is, shall we say, unfavorable. I mean, you're not exactly known as somebody who is pleasant to be around. Nobody comes back from a meeting and you say, how did it go? And you tell your spouse, that person is like demon-possessed. That's not a positive thing. That's, that's not something that you put down as a characteristic that you want people to describe you as. So there was something going on in, in her life that made her so clearly, evidently immoral or, or, or wicked or satanic or demonic or crazy, whatever it was. But, but, but Jesus heals her, redeems her, buys her back for himself. And what that does is it fosters this absolutely fastidious loyalty and love for Jesus the likes of which we don't have recorded elsewhere in Scripture. She loves him better than anyone else in the New Testament. She loves him wholly and completely. She was a woman of means. She had wealth. She's a, one, a woman who helped support the ministry. She and several other women we read in the Gospels were the ones who financially supported the work of the ministry. They were there when Jesus was crucified, when the disciples, in all of their manly brawniness, had run away screaming and terrified. They were there. They were the ones who took the body. They were the ones who dressed it. They were the ones who put all those expensive spices in it. She was the one who was going to come now and try to finish that work. Absolute loyalty. Loyalty to the Christ in whose blood is the new covenant, and yet who is excluded from the table when that new covenant was described. And in the midst of her grief, and in the midst of her sorrow, and in the midst of her confusion, we read this beautiful narrative. And what I want to show you this morning is just two, two things out of it. I know it's familiar, just two things in particular about what the new covenant requires. The new covenant requires that there be a resurrection and that there be a return. The new covenant requires that there will be a resurrection and a return. And we see that in this text. So that's, that's where we know it comes from. It demands a resurrection. It demands a return. This is how we can make the transition from the fulfillment of the old covenant into the new covenant. And we are new covenant believers. We are not old covenant believers. The old covenant believers looked to the new covenant. They sacrificed animals knowing that there was no way that the blood of bulls and goats could actually satisfy the wrath of God. They, they, they knew that, but they didn't know how that was going to be played out. So that's why the whole book of Hebrews is critically important. The book of Hebrews is written to Hebrews, Hebrew people. Um, you shouldn't look at me and surprised. But those people had grown up in a system that told them that if they sacrificed animals, that's all it took to be made right with God. But they knew that that wasn't really going to make them ultimately right with God. And so Hebrews explains why Christ is the sacrifice to which all those sacrifices were pointing. We're not old covenant believers. We're new covenant believers. We believe in Christ who came sent by his father to live the perfect life that Adam couldn't live, to die a perfect death that would be unjust were it not for the fact that that unjust sacrifice, the crushing of the innocent one, the cursing of the one who had never done anything to violate the covenant, opened up the door so that people like you and me who violate the covenant every single day can be clothed in his righteousness and accepted as one of his own. Now, all of that is just in its very seed form now in John chapter 20. And what Christ is going to do in this beautiful interaction with Mary is he's going to explain what's going on. And for some of you, if you're 
new to this, or if you're maybe not even a Christian, or you're visiting, I hope today is a day where you learn this very same truth that Mary did. And don't worry if you come perplexed, don't worry if you come grieving, don't worry if you come bearing a whole lot of guilt or shame or anything, because Jesus is going to show you how you can roll all of those burdens off yourself and onto him. It's one of those beautiful passages in the Bible. The new covenant requires a resurrection and a return. Let's look first at the resurrection, verses 11 through 15. I'm just going to walk through the text and explain it as we go. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped in to look into the tomb. Now, if we compare the other statements in John and the other Gospels, we realize that the disciples had been told by Mary that the tomb was open. Somebody had rolled the stone away. Somebody had broken in. Somebody had stolen the body. Somebody had done something to violate this sacred area where Jesus had been laid. And so she runs to find the disciples and she tells them. And we know that John and uh, Peter, they hear this and they immediately go. They go to see what she was talking about. She likely doesn't follow them or chase after them. She, she waits. She weeps. They go. John gets there early. Stoops down, same word, looks in. Peter rushes in afterwards, goes right in. They realize he's gone. It says they believed. Not that they believed that Jesus had rose from the dead. They believed that he really had been taken. When it says that they believed, they're saying that they believed Mary. They weren't really sure. Mary comes into the house. She's all hysterical. They've taken the body. Then they go and they look and they believe. They believe Mary. They don't believe in the resurrection. In fact, Luke tells, I think it's like Luke 24, says that they thought it was all a complete hoax. They didn't believe in the resurrection at that point yet. They didn't really understand it. So Mary now comes back again, and she stoops in, and she looks, and she's weeping. It's a Greek word that means uncontainable, audible grief. You ever been around somebody like that who's expressing uncontainable, audible grief? Constant crying, constant audible moans of sorrow and grief. And she saw when she looks inside, not just the place where Jesus' body had been, not just the cloth folded, not just the wrappings in the same shape of his body, but instead she sees two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. This was shocking. But I love how it was so shocking, but it wasn't terrifying. You know, most of the time in the Bible, when somebody sees an angel, they fall down as dead. Angels were terrifying. Angels were not those little precious moments dolls that you see. It's not what angels were like. Angels were terrifying. When you saw an angel, you didn't think, oh, cute, an angel. Like a little fat child with wings and a harp. No, when you saw an angel, you fell down as dead. You thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. This is a warrior. This is, this, is, this is a messenger from God. This is not the kind of person that I even want to be around. I can sense my own, my own sinfulness just in the presence of this being. And yet that's not how Mary is at all. Mary looks down and these two angels are there, identified as angels. She knew they were angels. And what do they say to her? It's amazing. They say to her, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you still weeping uncontrollably? Why are you still audibly, uncontrollably weeping? And she says to them, they have taken away my Lord, but I don't know where they have laid him. Now, now, now this you have to listen very carefully to and understand, because it's something that many of us are not, frankly, taught that clearly, even in 
some good churches. I think we tend to miss this. We skip over it sometimes. I want you to listen very carefully. This might be the first time you've considered it. Her Lord was gone. She believed that. She understood that her Lord was gone. But she misunderstood the meaning of his body. She misunderstood the meaning of his body. Why is a resurrection necessary? Because there has to be a resurrection. That's different than a resuscitation. It's different than a body simply coming back. There has to be a resurrection body, a new body, a glorified body, a special body. And Mary has her mind locked on the old body. The old body's gone. Her Lord is gone. Listen, her Lord was gone when he said, into the hands I commit my spirit on the cross. That's when her Lord was gone. Her Lord was not gone when the body was gone. The body was only a necessary instrument for a short period of time to accomplish a purpose that God had in fulfilling the old covenant. Please notice this. He had the old body. The old body that went into the tomb was the old body. It was the old Jesus body. That body that was the old body that died on the cross to fulfill the old covenant, but the new body, the one that she hadn't seen yet, the new body, the one she didn't even really understand was out there, the new body is the one that was going to be needed to fulfill the new covenant. Old body, old covenant. New body, new covenant. What's the new covenant body going to be doing? Jesus told his disciples around the table. He says, I will not drink of the vine again until I do so with you in my kingdom. I'm not going to drink wine with you again until I drink wine in the kingdom with you. Drinking wine with my mouth, drinking it in, in a new body. Just like when he showed up to them later on and he says, give me a piece of fish. I'm eating the fish. I'm, I'm, I'm eating these things. I'm drinking these things with a new glorified body. And I'll do that with you in the kingdom when I do my new covenant, new body things with you. But the old covenant, old body was gone. Now, this is where I think the liberals get it so wrong. Liberal theology says that the physical resurrection is irrelevant because all that really matters are Jesus' principles. All that really matters are Jesus' ideas. All that really matters is that he was a really nice guy and he loved people and he gave money to the poor and, and he was always available and, and he was forgiving and he was gracious and that's all that really matters. So, so why are you so hung up on the physical resurrection? There are entire strains of theology that teach this. Some of you may have been exposed to it. One of the most common is what we call liberation theology. When I was in seminary, I wanted to study this. But the class wasn't being offered. So I looked in the handbook and I realized that there was in fact a class on liberation theology. And so I called up the seminary and I said, I would like to take the class on liberation theology. And they said, you can't take it because it's not on the curriculum this year. And I said, well, when will it be offered? And they said, well, probably never because no one ever asks for it. And I said, well, what if I did an independent study? And they said, well, that's fine, but we don't have any curriculum made yet. I said, no problem, I'll make it. So it was great. I got to write my own curriculum. I got to make my own assignments. I got to do my own reading list. I got to grade my own papers. Uh, I did so well in that class, better than almost any other class in seminary. It was amazing. I, mean, I almost got an honorary doctorate because it was so outrageous. You should have read the comments. It was like stellar. Now, the problem was I was immersed for several months in heresy. That was the only downside. But I wanted to understand it because it's so moving and so compelling because Emotionally, we want to believe that that's all that really matters. That all that really matters is that we're nice to people and that we give to the poor and that we make them feel better and we alleviate their suffering. And yet Jesus came 
not just to alleviate suffering, Jesus came to alleviate the stain and the shame that comes from being guilty in the eyes of God. He came for, for way more than anything that any theology can offer you that doesn't embrace the resurrection. The physical resurrection was critical because it proved that the old covenant had been fully and completely and perfectly fulfilled in a man, a real flesh and blood man, who died the death that all flesh and blood sinners should have died, but was able, because of his holiness and his perfection, to die that death, even though it was unjust, in order to give that perfect life to those who put their faith in him. That's the hope of the resurrection. That's the hope of Easter. That's why we're here. God designed the resurrection this way. He designed the resurrection to create the tension that's in Mary's mind as described in this text. He designed the resurrection to create that tension because you need it. He wanted to distinguish clearly between these two bodies. Old covenant body, new covenant body. Old body, new body. Body of the incarnation, body of the resurrection. He wanted to make that distinction. The old one didn't breathe again. The old one didn't breathe again. I was at... Um, chapel not too long ago and I was preparing to preach and the chapel band was doing a song that's relatively new called Living Hope and in this song the writer writes the following line quote then came the morning that sealed the promise your buried body began to breathe end quote no it didn't it didn't we were singing that song and I turned to the campus pastor and I said um I don't think that's true. <laughs> We're singing this. But I, I, I'm not going to sing that because I don't think that's true. I mean, there's a lot of things that aren't true that we sing. I've given you the quote before, but I, I, I like it. It was A.W. Tozer, right, who said that Christians don't lie. They just go to church and sing lies. We sing a lot of lies. We sing a lot of lies around the holidays, especially. Now, I'm not entirely sure. I'm going to go back and do my research. And I told Julius ahead of time, I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to poke at one of the songs we sang today, but this isn't personal. It's not your fault. But I was just thinking about it as we were singing. You know, he's alive, he's alive, heaven's gates are open wide. I don't think there's a scripture reference that talks about heaven having gates. I mean, hell has gates. Um, the new Jerusalem has gates, but they're left open all the time. And that's on the new earth. Now, I might be wrong. I'm going to double check. But I don't think it has gates. But it sounds really nice. We could rewrite that, though. He's alive, he's alive. All believers justified. He's alive, he's alive. One day we'll be glorified. I just made that up. Wow. Write that down, because I'll forget it. We'll, we'll do that instead. But listen, it, you know, it's kind of fun. We can say that. But the reality of the matter is, we, we, we do sometimes sing these things that aren't true. And especially I find it difficult when I'm talking about the resurrection because that body did not begin to breathe again. If you hear nothing else today, please take this away with you. That body did not begin to breathe again. That body disappeared. That body did not see corruption. Psalm 22, the ultimate fulfilling of that because the body disappeared before any decay could have set in. There was no corruption because that body had served its purpose when the spirit was yielded up from it and was put in the grave. That body did not come back. That body disappeared. Jesus did not roll away the stone in order to walk out of the tomb. 
All those lovely Hallmark cards of, you know, like Jesus, like poking his head out of the tomb. Like, sort of looks around, happy Easter. No, that didn't happen. He didn't walk out. We're going to see that in a minute. He just appeared, but his body didn't need to be let out. Some people say that. Well, you know, the, the stone wasn't rolled away so that he could be let out. Well, duh. Of course not. And the very fact that when you look inside and you see the linen cloth still shaped like a body tells you that he didn't unwrap himself. He didn't start to breathe again, sit up, unwrap himself. He wasn't like Lazarus, remember? Lazarus did have that happen. Lazarus' body did come back to life again. Lazarus' body did begin to breathe again. Lazarus' body likely knew corruption. It had begun to rot and stink. But then when Jesus said, come out, there was a miracle. And when he comes out, he's coming out. But it's the same him. It's the same Lazarus that went in as the Lazarus that, that or came out that went in you know, shuffling out of there, wrapped up in the grave clothes. That's not what happened at the resurrection. So, Mary is looking for a body, a body that wasn't there a long time ago. It wasn't just disappeared Sunday morning. It was already long gone. So, what happens? And by the way, she didn't understand this fully, and it's okay if you don't either. It's okay if this is something that's sort of new to you. This is just something that we've sort of hung on to, maybe as a sentimental thought about Easter. But the reality is so powerful and so profound. That body's gone. And it's very important to how the covenant was fulfilled. Verse 14, having said this, having, having told the, the angels what she was looking for, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful statement? It's just so honest I mean, she's sort of tired of talking to angels at this point. Like the angel conversation, this isn't, this isn't helping. They're just like, why are you crying? And she tries to explain it, and then this isn't helping. So she turns around, and there's Jesus. But she doesn't know it's Jesus. And then Jesus, verse 15, says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Now, I don't, I'm not trying to be funny, um, but put yourself in Mary's shoes. Wouldn't she get a little irritated at this point about the question, about the crying? Like at some point? Really? That's all you men can notice is that I'm crying. It's like these men, like all, you know, all they're at, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Why are you crying? You ever do this when, you know, you, your wife's crying, you're like, hey, why are you crying? She's like, I'm just crying because I'm crying. Well, let me tell you what it is. I'll fix it. <laughs> I mean, I've never done that, but I've counseled enough couples to know. <laughs> it happens all the time. You can just, you can just see her like, why am I crying? Why do you think I'm crying? Isn't that what people do when they come to a grave? Isn't that what people do when they're burdened by grief? Isn't that what people do when, when the one whom they have, have loved so much and so dearly, the most lovable person ever in the history of the world, the most precious human being who's ever lived, has been cruelly and falsely tortured and killed, and now the body's been stolen, and you're asking me why I'm crying. Really? I'm crying because I'm devastated. I'm crying because I'm shattered. I'm crying because I'm broken. I'm crying because I'm utterly and completely distraught. That's why I'm crying. And he says, who are you seeking? It's like he's saying to her, without even realizing it, why, why, why are you here? What kind of Messiah are you looking for? Why are you here? Is this where you would expect to find Jesus? Is this really where you think he would be after what he had explained to you about the resurrection? Is, is this really where you think the king is going to be? Why are you here? Who are you looking for? 
And I think the light begins to dawn on her. Of course, she was there to see a dead person, but that person isn't dead. And so supposing him to be the gardener, she explains, this is like in her grief, she doesn't recognize him or he's disguised himself somehow. She doesn't recognize him. She thinks that he is the gardener. And by the way, the gardener was not the person there like picking weeds out of the flower beds. The gardener was the caretaker of the garden. It was his responsibility for moving bodies around, for putting bodies in tombs. But what they would do in those days is they would wrap you up and they would put a lot of spices in there to mask the the smell of decay, and then you would be in the tomb on a shelf for about a year. The gardener would come in after that. He would roll the stone away if it was covered. He would then take the body, which is only a pile of bones at this point. He would unwrap them. He would scoop up the bones, put them in a jar, put it on the shelf, and you could use that space again. That's what the gardeners did. And so this gardener comes along, and, and maybe Mary is wondering, you know, perhaps this gardener realized that this person was a convicted criminal, and they weren't even supposed to be buried. You know, it's amazing that, that Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, offers him, fulfillment of prophecy, his own tomb to be laid in because in those days, a person who died on a cross was pulled down off of that cross and hurled unceremoniously into Gehenna, which was the local garbage dump where the fire was always burning. Things were always on fire. They're burning and consuming the trash and the worm. The maggots never die because there was always organic things to be consumed there. It was a stench-filled, maggot-filled, fire-filled, smoke-filled, toxic place where you threw the bodies of criminals because they didn't deserve a burial. And maybe she's thinking, oh, you found out about this, you found out who he was, and you pulled the body out because you realized he didn't belong here. And so she's, again, saying to him this, look, if that was the case, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. I'll take him away. She wants to care for Jesus even in his death. And remember, Mary was somebody who had means. She was a wealthy woman. She was a, a woman of resources. There's every indication that she had plenty of financial wherewithal to look after herself and others, and she did that. She was a benefactor. And so what she does is she says, I'll take him. I'll bury him. But not only did there have to be a resurrection in order for his new covenant to be truly fulfilled, but there also had to be a return. And this is why it matters. This is where it all comes down in verse 16 through 18. Not only was there a real resurrection that was necessary, and Mary's learning that, a resurrection that means a new body, but there also has to be a resurrection that means a return, verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, Mary. I love that. Don't you love that he says Mary? Of all the things he could have said. If the heart of Jesus isn't shown in that, I don't know what is of his tenderness, of his gentleness, his kindness. He just says, Mary. The sound of her own name coming from him. It wasn't some dazzling, spectacular reveal. He didn't invite everybody to come and see it. He didn't tell everyone to come out at a certain time so that he could show himself. He didn't... He didn't makes a big spectacle in front of Mary. He didn't just suddenly open up her eyes and be like, ta-da, I'm here. It's me. He just said, Mary. And that was all it took. That was all it took for her to know that this was him. This was the one. Different body, same 
person. And so here it is. <laughs> she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Again, she's speaking her native language, which is Aramaic. The gospel writer is writing in Greek. The readers are Greek. And so the Greek readers are having the Aramaic, which is very close to Hebrew, translated for them. Again, this is her eyewitness account. She is telling the writer that this is what I said. She was there. It was just her and Jesus. And then Jesus says to her, do not cling to me. Let's be clear about this because it's sometimes misunderstood. Jesus wasn't being rude or unkind or insensitive. Likely what happened is that Mary, when she realized it was Jesus, fell down on her knees in worship and held on to his feet and his sandals and basically said, you got away from me once. You're not going to get away from me again. Clinging on to him, holding on to him so that he didn't get away. Touching him wasn't the issue. In fact, later on, remember Doubting Thomas? That paragon of faith? We all might have done the same thing. But he says to Thomas, touch me. Put your finger where those nails were. Put your fist where the spear went. Touching him wasn't the issue. The issue was clinging to him, asking him to stay here, worrying that this was her last chance to, to see him face to face. And he is saying, don't cling to me, don't worry. I've got lots of work to do. I'll be here for a while. I'll be on earth for a while. We'll have plenty of opportunity to talk. Because he says this, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but I go to my brothers. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. Mary, don't cling to me. Don't hold on to me. Because of this reason, here it is, I have not yet ascended. Why does he have to ascend? Why does he have to ascend? He has to ascend so that he can descend. That might sound a little bit overly simplistic, but let me say it again in case you missed it. He has to ascend so he can what? Descend so that he can return. This was not the second coming. This was not the return of Christ. The return of Christ will happen when he comes to establish his kingdom. And so he says to her, I must ascend in order to fulfill the completion of the old covenant, the initiation of the new covenant that was in my blood, because now a resurrected human body is going to go into the presence of God. It's the first one. It's the first fruits, Romans will teach us in a few weeks the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first example of what a human body, glorified, will look like and equipped to be able to exist in the presence of God. It is called spiritual flesh. It seems like oxymoronic, but in Romans it's called spiritual flesh. Flesh, real flesh that eats bread and drinks wine and eats fish and, and, and touches people and has scars, but a flesh that is spiritual enough to live in the heavenlies. He has to go there. And the emphasis I want you to notice here is on what has not happened, not what has happened. What has happened is now behind him, even the resurrection. What has not yet happened is the return, and that is what he is asking Mary to prepare for. And go tell my brothers, by the way, not the disciples, not my slaves, go tell my brothers. Notice what he says. He says here that he has not ascended yet to my father and your father, to my God and your God. What does that mean? It means that he is focusing in on the, the uniqueness of the privileges. Look how personal it is. My father, my God. And he says, not only mine, but yours, equal to me. 
You're my joint heir. You're my brother. We're equal in the family. You've been adopted into the family. You're equal. You're you're, you're just like me in the eyes of the Father. My righteousness covers you. My glory shrouds you. Everything I have done is handed over to you. Everything you did was paid for by me on the cross. That's over. That's past. We're now seen as joint heirs in the eyes of the Father. My Father, my God, your Father, your God. When it comes to eternal relationships within the Godhead, he says what's mine is yours, and what's yours was accomplished or defeated through me. Jesus fulfills that covenant He is called the second Adam. He came to do what Adam failed to do. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And please notice it. Even though he fulfilled the law perfectly, it was him who was cursed when he was hung on the tree. It was him who was punished as if he had sinned. It was him who was ripped and crushed and nailed to a cross as a cursed one, forsaken by God, who spent three hours in total darkness absorbing a million eternal hells for all of those who would believe. And that's because God walked through the animals in Genesis 15. Because he could not uphold his own standard of holiness had he not punished sin to the degree that he said he would. And he was kind enough to Abraham to knock him out so that he didn't even try to walk through and make that covenant, which would be suicidal. Romans 8, 15 to 17 said this, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. He shares his glory, shares his inheritance. Well, verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord. Not the one I was looking for, not the old one that I was looking for when I went to the tomb, but the new one, the risen Lord, the real Lord, the resurrected Lord, the new covenant Lord. I've seen him with my own eyes. He's real. I've seen the Lord. And he has said these things to her. Mary does as she's told that obedient, faithful, loving, gracious servant that she was. She does exactly as he asks her to do. Mary Magdalene was the first missionary. Mary Magdalene was the first missionary. God entrusts the message of the resurrection to go back to the disciples through the mouth of a woman who had been demon-possessed. And he sends her back with that glorious message of truth, ordaining her to be the messenger of peace. I love that. What a wonderful way to reward her loyalty to him. So, what's the takeaway? Jesus didn't need to rise from the dead bodily in order to be reunited with the Father in glory. You understand that, right? He didn't need to be raised from the dead bodily in order to be united with the Father eternally because he said on the cross when he died after saying it is finished, into thy hand I commit my what? Spirit. He was there. The resurrection wasn't necessary, so Jesus had a soul vehicle to get back into heaven. The resurrection was necessary. 
to prove that human flesh had fulfilled the law. And that in the new covenant, human flesh would once again wrap eternal souls, but it would be glorified and perfect, and it would be able to enter into the very glory of heaven. Jesus dies in the flesh to fulfill the old covenant as the second Adam, and he rises again, given this new glorified flesh to model the new covenant inheritance. And by choosing to rise again, he chooses to put on that flesh again, but this time it's resurrected flesh. It is not flesh like Romans 8 says that he came in the first time in the likeness of human sinful flesh. But this is glorified flesh, and it's a preview of the body that he will permanently inhabit forever and ever in glory. It is that body that he will bring with him when he returns from glory. And it's the body like the one we will have in the new heavens and the new earth. He left in spirit, the work of the old flesh being accomplished, and he will return now in new flesh, prepared to rule his kingdom with all of you who have put your faith in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious truth, this Resurrection Sunday. Forgive us for how little we make of it sometimes. Remind us of the absolute obligation that you place yourself under to rise again from the dead in physical form in order that you might model and display your glorious victory over sin and death and hell and your perfect fulfillment of the old covenant and your absolute payment for every sin of every person who would ever believe and violate that covenant and the fulfillment of your promise that in the new covenant of your blood, would be a resurrection, not just to be enjoyed by you, but to be shared with your brothers and your sisters in glory forever. Oh God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for all who have yet to put their faith in you. If there be anybody here who does not believe this yet, that you would open up their eyes the way you opened up Mary's eyes. Maybe they've heard it for years. They've grown up in homes where this has been preached. May today be the day where you break through and open up their eyes to the truth. Help them to realize that in their own sinful flesh, they can accomplish nothing but to heap up even more judgment against themselves against that great day. That they too will be resurrected one day, but it will be a resurrection body appointed for the second death, a body also in spiritual capacity designed to experience nothing but wrath and torment and hell forever. And that is just as real as a resurrection body offered to those who put their trust in you that we might enjoy absolute pleasure forever. Let today be a day of reckoning. For your own glory, do whatever it takes to draw them to yourself in saving faith. For those of us who do believe, I pray that today would be that day of celebration where we continue from our glorious realization that on the cross, it was finished. And in the garden, it was revealed. And the promise renewed that one day we will be with you in paradise. Lift us up with these thoughts. 
For it's your name we pray. Amen.